Good morning, church. You can say good morning. It's good. You're not on a screen right now. You guys are on a screen, um, but the rest of you can say good morning. Take out your Bibles and turn to Genesis 17 for the third and final time. Uh, this morning, we will be looking at verses uh, 15 through 27. Uh, Genesis 15, uh, Genesis 17, verses 15 through 27. We have now covered covenant, and we have now covered circumcision. God, as the creator, is also then the author and designer of life. And as the author and designer of life, he has designed that relationship be central to that life. Relationship first with him, and then relationship with one another. Life is relationship, and we're seeing that right now. Aren't we? Uh, we're experiencing the effects of relational breakdown uh, as our country still reels from the horrible injustice committed against George Floyd and then the often horrible aftermath. Uh, one death that should have never happened, followed by at least 12 more deaths in the aftermath that should have never happened. And everyone is calling for justice, which is perfect because next week, uh, Genesis 18:19, we get to the first use of the word justice in the whole Bible. Uh, we're actually going to see how central justice is as the condition and heart of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to have a chance to step back and look, not at social justice, but at biblical justice. Uh, we're not going to leave Genesis, but we're going to work from that text to take a look at what the Bible actually says about justice as we seek to make sure that our thinking is shaped by the word and not by the world. Um, so go ahead and read Genesis 18 and be thinking through what that text teaches us about justice. Pray for me as I prepare for that, and then come back and join us uh, next week. But another thing that people are talking a lot about right now is identity. Excellent. Because this text also talks about that as well. And all of it is related because identity is determined in large part by relationship. Your identity is determined in large part by your relationships. And this text is all about relationship. The relationship that gives life and identity. But as we've seen, sin as the breaking of God's law, the law that is inherent to him, that is a reflection of his good and just character, is thus a rejection of him and a severing of that relationship. God is life. Therefore, the wages of sin is death. God is good. Therefore, the result of sin is ruined relationship. God makes man for a relationship with him. Man breaks that relationship. That's the story of the Bible. God makes man breaks. God makes man breaks. And covenant is how God restores the ruptured relationship. Covenant is how a holy God reconciles and reestablishes relationship with sinful man. And Genesis 17 is all about covenant. God is very concerned here to show us and to show you what needs to be done and to affirm again and again and again that he is going to do it. And that's what this chapter is ultimately about. It's about the covenant that God makes with Abraham to begin the process of rescuing his people and restoring them to relationship with him. And last week, we saw that circumcision is an important part of that process. Strange. Uh, this is the covenant of circumcision. We saw that circumcision is the sign of the covenant. And it is a graphic sign in two senses 
of the word. It is clear, it's painful and powerful, but also it's graphic, and it is giving us a graph, a picture of what is required for the relationship to be restored. Negatively, it depicts that there must be a cutting, there must be death, sin must be cut off, the dead heart must be cut out, the flesh availeth nothing. Genesis 16, we've seen, whatever is born of man is sin. But then positively, it also depicts that there must be grace. God has created a problem. God must provide the solution. Heart circumcision. A new heart. A new life. Genesis 21. We're going to see that. It is the Spirit who gives that life. And we're going to see both of these truths fleshed out today as God further clarifies what is required for relationship with Him. And then also further clarifies who is in relationship with Him. This text is one of the most important texts that we have for answering one of the most important questions of theology. Your system of theology will be determined in large part by how you answer this question. Who are God's people? Who are God's people? And then how are those that are God's people, how are they made God's people? And how can you tell? This text is going to help us answer that also important identity question. Identity is everything. Can you identify your identity? From this text, we're going to see God that, that God wants you to know uh, whose are his. And then more importantly, more personally, God wants you to know that you are his. God wants you to know whose are his and that you are his. He wants us to be able to discern who are his people and then he wants to comfort and assure those who are. He wants you to know. He wants you to know that you know and more importantly to know that you are known. So keep in mind the context of our passage. Always ask what comes before and what comes after. Why is this here? Why all these promises? Why is God reconfirming his covenant arrangement? Well, don't forget, we have chapter 16, Abraham's lack of faith, leading to his sin with Hagar, resulting in a son, a seed, Ishmael. Now God comes back and promises a son, a seed, but not Ishmael, as this text first introduces us to Isaac. The son is now named, and he is not that son, but this son. He is not Ishmael, but Isaac. Isaac is why this text is here. God is discriminating in the original sense of the word. He's differentiating. He is drawing a distinction. Those who are his, those who are not, those who are in the covenant, and those who are out. And so I want to help you know from this text who are God's people. And then if you are, I want you to know and rest and rejoice that you are God's people. I want that to increasingly be what identifies you and what brings you great hope and peace and joy in these crazy times. I am currently separated from my wife and my daughters for a week. I, I remember I said that. I said that in the first service. Like, I'm not legally separated. Not like we're not separated. Geographically separated is, is what I meant. Um, she's in North Carolina. I'm in New York. That makes me sad. Uh, but I find great confidence and comfort and security. You see, my earthly identity is wrapped up in my wife and in my daughters. I am theirs, and they are mine. Lord willing, I will return to them in a week and be united with them. So I know where I'm going. I know who's waiting for me. I know that those who are waiting for me love me and care for me. And that identity fuels and fires me. It's what shapes and defines me. It's what I live for. They, the relationship, are what I live 
for. And in an infinitely more important and comforting way, I want you to know, and I want you to know that you know that all about your relationship with God. I want you to know whose you are. I want you to know who is waiting for you. And I want you to know where you are going. Who are God's people? And then know that you are God's people. We're going to do that this morning uh, from this text by looking at four people. Uh, Four people, four points. We're going to start with Sarah. And we're going to be reminded uh, through Sarah that God wants you to know that you are his. And if you are his, that he is working all things for your good. Second, we're going to jump to Ishmael, and we're going to see that those of the flesh are not God's people. Ishmael represents the flesh, and those of the flesh are not God's people. Third, we're going to be introduced to Isaac, and we're going to see that it is those of the Spirit who are God's people. And then fourth and finally, we may come back and see that Abraham, to Abraham, and see that God's people then exercise obedient faith. How can you tell who are God's people? They exercise obedient faith faith in response to God's free grace. So, in and out. Uh, Forgive the punny title. It's not usually my style. Uh, Ed Moore is the sermon title master, uh, but I've never been out west. I've always wanted to go uh, see the Grand Canyon and the Yosemite and the Rockies. And when I told Melissa I would, I'd like to go out west and do all the things, she, she was like, yeah, well, yeah, I'd like, I'd like to go eat at In-N-Out. Right? She wants to eat a burger at In-N-Out because that's her favorite food. Uh, so this title is a tribute to my wife, who I miss. Um, but it is the question. This is the difference between in and out. In or out. So who are you and whose are you? Let's read Genesis 17 as it answers that question for us. Uh, we don't have time to read the whole chapter. I would like to, uh, but I'm going to pick up in verse 15, and I'll read to you, for you uh, through the end in verse uh, 27. But you can follow along as I read it for you. Genesis 17, starting in verse 15. Pay attention, because this is what God, this is what the Word wants to say to you today. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. And you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, or bought with his money every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was ninety-nine years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was thirteen years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised 
with him. If you would, let's pause. Um, let's go to the Lord first in a word of prayer uh, before we continue. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are gracious and kind. We thank you that you are wise and that you are good. We thank you that you are the God who speaks and you speak to us uh, through your word. Father, you have ordained uh, that this would be the word um, that we hear um, today. And so I ask and, and pray that you would help me, Father, to preach your word, uh, to preach the truth in accordance uh, with your word. I pray that I would be uh, set aside and that your word uh, would be clear. I pray that your word um, would confront us in our sin. I pray that your word would comfort us in our hurt and in our confusion. I pray that your word would give us uh, great joy and hope and love for your son, Jesus Christ, whom this text is ultimately about. So, Father, help me now. Please help uh, the preaching of your word. Uh, please help the hearing of your word. I pray that you would shape our hearts and our minds in accordance with your word. And we ask and we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so let's, <clears throat> let's start with Sarah. Uh, through Sarah, we're going to see that God wants his people, he wants you to know that you are his, and that if you are his, he is working for your good. Remember last week, we saw the subject of our text start to shift in verse 9. God has been reaffirming all his grand and glorious promises to Abraham. He's been reminding and reassuring him of what God was going to do for him. These are guarantees. These are promises. And God's promises, as Spurgeon says, are like checks. Right? You can take them to the bank. And so we must give priority to the promises of God in our thinking. They must be where we start. They are our foundation, our assurance. That's what he is going to do, and he will do it. So rest in those promises. But in verse 9, we saw the focus shift to Abraham and to his role and responsibility in the covenant. And we looked at the conditions or the obligations of the covenant. And none of that negates what I just said. Remember, covenant is about relationship. Here, covenant, think relationship. Relationship always involves two parties. Covenant involves two parties. So in verse 9, we saw God say, as for you. And here's Abraham's role. And next week, we're going to see God specifically define Abraham's role and condition in the covenant in accordance with justice. It's going to be really, really interesting to look at what God is saying there. So I'm excited about that. And so in verse 9, we saw God say, as for you, Abraham, and then we looked at circumcision, which we saw that was simply a sign and a summary of all of the covenant obligations, walking before the Lord, being blameless, doing justice, and being righteous. That's next week. But look at verse 15. Notice the similar wording in verse 15. We're now shifting from Abraham to Sarai. As for Sarai, your wife... But notice that it's not what we would expect in light of verse 9. The focus is not on Sarai's obligations to God, but once again on God's promises to Sarai. And the first thing that he says is, As for Sarai, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, I'm not entirely sure on all this, um, but I have a hard time buying how most people interpret uh, this verse. We know that in Hebrew, Sarah means princess. We're not entirely sure what Sarai means. It's not Hebrew. Uh, most people argue that Sarai probably means, wait for it, princess. Um, so, God is saying, as for princess, you shall not call her name princess. A princess shall be her name. I mean, it's possible, I guess. I, 
He could just be slightly changing the form to some way emphasize that she's now his or... I don't know. I'm not, I'm not positive. Uh, but remember who these people were. Remember who Abraham's family uh, were. They, they were pagans. They were, they were from around Babylon. They did not know God. Uh, they did not worship God. Uh, but in the language that would have been spoken in their area of origin, Akkadian, Sarai is probably the name for the consort of the moon god that they would have worshipped. So it's possible that she has a pagan name that associates her with a false god, and now... The one true God, Yahweh, comes in and renames her, signifying that he has taken her from that to this, from out to in, from named for a pagan goddess, known basically only for sleeping with the moon god Sin, to the princess of the one true God. I mean, that sounds a little bit better to me, not positive, but that sounds like an entire identity change. And the name change is a sign of that. We talk in this chapter about circumcision as the sign. And it is, but there are actually three signs in this chapter. Circumcision, Abraham's name change, and Sarah's name change. God is marking out his people. He is claiming them. His naming is claiming. But in claiming them, he is also then blessing God wants Sarah to know that she is his. She wa- he wants there to be no way for her to misunderstand or to miss who she is. And he wants her to know that he is working for her good. Look at verse 16. God says, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Well, so keep in mind, again, keep in mind chapter 16. Uh, Sarah was not innocent in the whole Hagar fiasco. She was, in fact, the initial instigator of the whole Hagar fiasco. Her unbelief has led to great sin. She has doubted God's good and gracious, clear and compassionate promise. And yet, here comes God, reaffirming his promise. And in reaffirming his promise, affirming her identity as his daughter, his his princess, comforting and assuring her that for those who are his, all things work together for good. That in that in claiming her by naming her, he is ultimately and eternally blessing her. He says it twice in one verse. I will bless her. Just in case you missed it, I will bless her. Which means that he will do her good. That's what it means. To bless. It means to bring about good for the one who is blessed. And when God blesses his people, we're talking about ultimate good, spiritual good. He will give her the son that she is longing for, but more importantly, he will give her the son that the whole creation is longing for. Not just a son, but the son. The seed, yes, she will become. Nations and kings will come from her. But more importantly, from those kings will eventually come the king that will redeem and ransom a people from God, for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. God is going to do all of that. The plan. The plan to bring himself ultimate glory and his people ultimate good through Sarah. So God has called her and he has claimed her, he has blessed her, and he has named her. He explicitly tells her that she is his and that he is working for her good. 
I mentioned it in the email on Wednesday, uh, Jeremiah 32, 40. Uh, God's explanation of the new covenant he's about to make. What's the big deal? Why are we talking so much about covenant? What what does it mean for us? Why does he enter into covenant? Well, he tells us. It's it's a great, important verse. Jeremiah 32, 40. He says, I will make with them an everlasting covenant. That, purpose statement now, here's why he's doing it. That, I will not turn away from doing good to them. You see, that's what it means to be in covenant with God. That's what relationship with the good God means. Goodness. God with you is good for you. Covenant is how God is with you. Therefore, covenant is good for you. God is goodness. He is blessing. He is life. Being with him then is all about goodness, blessing, and life. That's what we're getting in the covenant. That's what the covenant is all about. That's what God is working to bring about. His ultimate glory by securing his people's ultimate good by his son's ultimate sacrifice. God is out for the good of his people. So it's good. It's good to be with God. It's good to be God's people. Do we believe that he is working all things together for the good of his people? And brothers and sisters, I think we can all agree, it's been a rough couple of months, right? Uh, And then another rough couple of weeks on top of those rough couple of months. And and it's just so easy uh, for us to get caught up completely and consumed by all the chaotic circumstances. And we hear so much input. Remember Psalm 1, the very first psalm, talks about input being the most important uh, thing. Where is your mind set? And this is why we so desperately need the Word. Why we need what Calvin called the, the spectacles of Scripture. Uh, Miss Virginia's uh, personal prayer request Tuesday night was that she would be able to look at and see our circumstances and the current situation from God's perspective. Amen. That's what I need, and that's what we need corporately as a church, that we would listen not to the talking heads, that we would not read the current happenings through the lens of the world, but through the lens of the Word. And were we able to do that, it would change everything. I desperately want to better see things from God's perspective, and I want that for all of us. And I want you to see you from God's perspective. I want you to know how important it is for you to know that you are his. And if you are his, then you are his son or daughter, and he cares for his children. Cast all your cares on him. Why? Because he cares for you. He has named you and claimed you. We've seen naming come up multiple times in Revelation. God puts his own name on us and he makes us his. And if he has done that for you, then I want you to know that he has not just done that arbitrarily or because he can, since he's the king and has all the the power and sovereignty and authority. That's, That's true. But he executes all of that infinite power and authority for your good. He saves to bless. Saving is the blessing. We were cut off, destined for death and hell, um, but he blesses us and saves us and restores us to relationship with him. Uh, We find our long lost identity in him. We find a sure foundation in this crazy and chaotic world. Stability in the midst of instability. Love in the midst of hate. Life in the midst of death. And if all this is true, if this covenant and what God is doing in it is true, then all of those things are only found in Him. 
And, and all of that is what he has promised to all of those who are his. So learn more and more to delight in that. To, to talk to yourself regularly about who God is and who you are in Christ. Right? Consider not what you see, uh, but what you hear. Uh, consider not what the world says, but the word. Consider that you are a son or daughter of the Most High God. And that he has and will continue to bless you beyond all belief. That's a promise. Right? We see him doing that for Sarah here. And he does the same thing for every single one who is his. So believe that promise. Now look to the ultimate, not the immediate. Look to the heavenly reality, not the earthly reality. God is working for the good of those who are his. We have to believe that promise because scripture affirms it again and again and again. He's sovereign. He's ordaining and working all things and he's doing all of those things for the good of his people. We have to hold on to that clear biblical truth. He works all things for the good of those who are his. Which obviously then raises the, the question, the next question. Well, who are his? Who are God's people? Point number two. Let's look at Ishmael. We're going to see that those of the flesh are not God's people. And this is just a really, really important point. Uh, this is really important to our understanding of theology and of the covenants, uh, we differ from our dispensational brothers, we differ from our Presbyterian brothers, in large part over a difference in the identity of the people of God. And this, I think, is also an important point in our understanding of the events going on around us today and how the church can and should respond to them. Well, next week, we were introduced to Ishmael back in 16 verse Fifteen, And we saw him there. He was named by God in verse 11. He was the result of Abraham and Sarah's sinful plan to bring about God's promise in their own uh, power. And as is always the case with all sin, there are always significant consequences to sin. And we see that with this one. We see that in our chapter. Look at verse 18. Now the first time Ishmael is mentioned in this chapter. God has reaffirmed his promise to Abraham, and he has just reaffirmed and clarified that he will perform that promise through Sarah. God has said, I will bless her. I will bless your wife, Abraham. I will give you a son by your wife, Abraham. And what is Abraham's response to this gracious promise to his wife? That's a good question, actually. Uh, there's great debate over Abraham's response. Actually, look at verse 17 first. Uh, look at 17. It says, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is, 99, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Well, how do we interpret that laugh? I don't know. Uh, it was a complete, it, we, get, we get complete uh, and opposite um, interpretations of that from different people. Some say it is definitively a laugh of worship and joy and faith because he's not specifically rebuked for that laugh. Others say it is a laugh of complete and total um, unbelief because he doubts God's promise. Uh, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I lean more towards the second because whatever it is, we have to read it in light of verse 18. 18 has to put somewhat of a negative response on 17. Take out verse 17, and 18 is Abraham's response to God's promise to bless his wife and give her the son uh, that she has been so longing. What's Abraham's response to this promise to give his wife a son? Oh, that Ishmael 
might live before you. What? God, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham, I've already got a son. It's clear that Abraham still doesn't get it. God has again told Abraham what he is going to do, and Abraham has again told God what he thinks that God should consider doing instead. And oh, how like Abraham are all of us. God is persistently gracious. Abraham and we are persistently uh, grumbling. Uh, God has made what he is going to do clear. Abraham insists that he should consider doing something else. God has been clear, and he will be clear again. Look at verse 19. God says, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. Skip the rest of 19. We'll come back to that in the next point. Look at verse 20. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac. All right, first, an object lesson and my need, my own need, to practice uh, what I preach. I said a few weeks ago, you've all forgotten this, so I shouldn't even bring it up, uh, but I said a few weeks ago, looking at chapter 16, uh, verses 11 and 12, that it sure didn't seem like what God was doing there, what he was telling Hagar about Ishmael, was a blessing at all. Well, as I say to you often, but failed to do, context. I should have kept reading, because we just heard God himself say, in chapter 17, verse 20, that he has blessed Ishmael. Whoops. <laughs> So I was wrong. But the question is, what kind of blessing is this? God says he will be fruitful and multiply, and he will be made into a great nation. And so we have to read that. We also have to read that in light of what he has already said in chapter 16, verse 12. That includes that Ishmael's hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and that he shall dwell over against all his kingdom, all his kinsmen. So in the context of that blessing, we have against, 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 and, and lots of uh, conflict. So it is a blessing, but it is also a different kind of blessing. Regardless of all the particulars, and we could argue about them all morning, what is clear is that this is a blessing distinct from the blessing that Isaac will receive. Abraham says, hey, what about Ishmael? God says, no, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Says it in verse 19. Oh, and just in case you're slow to get it, Abraham, which, by the way, you are, again, verse 21, I will establish my covenant with Isaac. Meaning, also then, that I will not establish my covenant with Ishmael. So whatever the blessing that Ishmael is receiving, it is not the covenant blessing. Which is what? Remember, what is the covenant blessing? It's God himself. I am your shield, your very great reward, Abraham. Remember, the blessing is relationship. I will be your God and you will be my people. The reward is relationship with God himself. The promise of the covenant is the one through whom God is going to restore the relationship by dealing with our sin problem. So if this whole covenant is ultimately about God's relationship with his people, when he is clear that he is not making that covenant with Ishmael, he is making it clear that Ishmael is not part of that people. He is out. He will relatively bless Ishmael, but he will not ultimately bless or eternally bless Ishmael, which is what the covenant is ultimately and eternally all about. 
Maybe we should consider it in terms of, of common grace versus special grace. Uh, common grace is not the most helpful of terms, actually, but it's just kind of just the general idea that all good, relative good, comes from God. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. No one deserves any of that. But all of it, those who are gods, uh, those who are not gods, they receive um, all that good and all that common mercy uh, from him. But the question then is, that I think we are hesitant to want to consider in light of that, is, is what is the ultimate result of all of that relative good that those who are not gods receive? Where, what does that end up in ultimately? I recommended a couple of weeks ago uh, Thomas Watson's book, All Things for good. It's really good to step back out of our time and to read people in different time periods. Go read some old books. Uh, All Things for Good is an exposition of Romans 8, 28. And he's got an interesting part in it that I've been thinking about a lot in light of current circumstances. I don't have it all figured out. I'm just trying to sort it out. Um, so don't press me on it yet. Maybe we'll come back to it some other time. But Watson, uh, one of the greatest uh, Puritans, or one of the, uh, just go read some Thomas Watson. But what he's doing, he's drawing some inferences from the truth that all things work together for good for those who are God's people. And one of those must then logically be the opposite truth. He wants to, Watson wants to draw your attention, he says, to the miserable condition of the wicked, which, remember, is everyone who are not gods. And Watson writes this. He says, to those who are godly, evil things work for good. That's Romans 8, 28. Praise God. He takes everything, all the evil of the world, all our own evil, and he works it all for good. To those who are godly, evil things work for good. But to those who are evil, good things work for hurt. And if you think about it, ultimately, that has to be true. He goes on. This will not be popular. But think through it biblically and logically. Watson writes, Riches and prosperity are not benefits, but snares to them. Worldly things are given to the wicked for a snare. The common mercies wicked men have are not lodestones to draw them nearer to God, but millstones to sink them deeper in hell. Their delicious dainties are like Haman's banquet. After all their lordly feasting, death will bring in the bill, and they must pay it in hell. That's heavy. As I'm thinking through it logically, it has to be true. I can't argue with the logic of the argument. It's something really to consider and to keep in mind in light of what's going on right now, in light of many of the arguments in the church at large. Maybe we'll come back and touch on this next week. But for now, the main point is that God is clear that Ishmael is not part of the covenant. He says, I will not make my covenant with him, but with Isaac. And so I ended up, I'm deciding, I'm cutting things, and I'm, I'm sparing you the baptism sermon that I was considering uh, doing. I want to be able to actually move on from this chapter. Notice down, though, in verse 25, that Ishmael is circumcised. He, he receives the sign of the covenant. But God has just been clear in 19 and 21 that he is not establishing his covenant with Ishmael. So he receives the sign of the covenant, but he isn't actually, or he isn't spiritually, in the covenant. And so Ishmael would be one of the major arguments that we would use for why we do not baptize our babies. Plus the fact 
And here's where the divide ultimately results. As our Presbyterian brothers, who I love and I'm very thankful uh, for, would argue that this is the covenant of grace. Right? They're going to say that all the covenants are just different administrations of the one covenant of grace. So Abrahamic covenant, same as the new covenant, all different covenants, uh, different aspects of the covenant of grace. And since sign of the covenant is given to infants in the Abrahamic covenant, and since it's the same as the covenant of grace, therefore we should give the sign of the new covenant baptism to infants in the covenant of grace. That's summarizing kind of the, the Presbyterian argument. Uh, we would disagree and say, no, 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 this is, this is a different covenant. Um, this is what Reformed Baptists call a mixed covenant. It consists of a physical part and a spiritual part. What is happening here in the Abrahamic covenant, and I want to do just a whole series on this, and I'm trying to protect you uh, from myself and doing that. But this one covenant contains the seeds of both the covenant of works to come in the Mosaic covenant and the covenant of grace to come in the new covenant. Remember, covenant of works. God says you have to be righteous to be in a relationship with me. None is righteous. No, not one. We're still under that covenant. Someone has to fulfill that covenant condition, perfect righteousness. So what the Abrahamic covenant is doing, is, I got off my notes, it's promising that there's a physical seed that is going to come. And here comes the Mosaic covenant. And you have to keep it or you're out. You have to be righteous. Oh, by the way, you can't do it. But then there's also the component of, of the promise where God says, I am going to send this seed and the son who's going to come in and fulfill that condition. That Mosaic covenant, which is the covenant of works for you. And so it's a mixed. Within this one covenant, we see the Mosaic covenant of works coming. And we see the covenant of grace, the new covenant coming. And God says, I'm going to fulfill that covenant for you through sending the Son in the covenant of grace. Right? The Abrahamic covenant is the promise of the seed to come in and fulfill the covenant of works. I know I just lost all of you. I'm sorry. Um, but it's really, really important because in this one covenant that is doing these two separate physical, spiritual things, everyone receives the physical sign. But not everyone receives the spiritual benefits of the promise. As we see with Ishmael, you can be in, but not in. As Paul says in Romans 9, 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, you can be part of God's physical people, you can be under the physical aspect of the covenant, but not part of God's spiritual people, true Israel. Romans 2.28, we looked at it last week. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And you see, so what this does is this answers the oh-so-important question of who are God's people. Ironically, our dispensational brothers and our Presbyterian brothers make the same mistake. The dispensationalists say the physical nation of Israel are the people of God. Where Paul has just said, it's not outward or physical. Not all of physical Israel belong to spiritual Israel. Then the Presbyterians make the same mistake when they look at this covenant and then say, oh look, children also are included in the covenant. The children of the flesh are included um, in this one administration of the covenant of grace. So both, which are generally opposite ends of the spectrum, are both actually making the same mistake. They're including the physical, not just the spiritual, as part of God's people. Both of them try and include the flesh as part of the people of God. And that's the problem. 
And so I would love to go more into that. Um, but for now, I've got to move on. Uh, for now, we simply have to get that Ishmael represents those of the flesh. He, Galatians 4, Paul says very clearly, was born according to the flesh, and he represents the Mosaic Covenant. He represents the covenant of works. Any attempt to get and gain righteousness and right standing with God through birth or through works, through ethnic identity or our love of justice or our religious rule keeping or any attempt to work our way to God and be good enough for God. Ishmael represents the results of the flesh. Romans 8, 8. Those who are in the flesh, though, cannot please God. John 6, 63, flipping the order, Jesus says, says, the flesh is of no avail. It is the spirit who gives life. And so, those of the flesh are not God's people. Anyone of the flesh are not God's people. And this is why, as Baptists, we do not give the sign of the covenant uh, to our children. Because it's only, always, and only been God's spiritual people who are part of his true uh, people. Uh, This covenant that is all about reconciliation and relationship with the God of life. uh, This covenant uh, that brings us back into that fellowship with him. To be outside of that covenant then is death. Ishmael is outside of that covenant. And so are all who are of the flesh. Those who are of the flesh are not God's people. Who then are God's people? Point number three, I'll pick up the pace. Isaac. It's only then those of the Spirit who are God's people. Look uh, back uh, to verse 19. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after Isaac. Listen, Isaac is why chapter 17 is here. Here is why Isaac is named for the first time, and he's humorously named. Abraham laughs. God gets the last laugh, naming the son. He laughs. Abraham's probable laugh of unbelief will be transformed into a laugh of joy as God delivers on his promise to give him a son by his wife Sarah, the son. And what is the one thing that is singled out about this son? Why is this son so important? What is it that he is distinguished? What it distinguishes him from Ishmael? What God tells us. Because God will make his covenant with Isaac, not with Ishmael. This covenant that is about uh, reconciliation and relationship and life. And the contrast between chapter 16 and chapter 17, between Ishmael and between Isaac, is so, so Important. This contrast is the difference between life and death, the difference between grace and work. Abraham tried to bring about God's promise his way, and it didn't work because it never works. The flesh availeth nothing. But in spite of his sin and failure, in spite of all his sin uh, to do um, what God wants, um, in spite of all of that, in his attempt to perform God's promise on his own, God still comes in and promises that he is going to do it without man's help, without the flesh, which is death. And so Ishmael represents flesh, man's futile works. Isaac represents spirit, God's free grace. And remember the sign of circumcision. It represents these two things. That which proceeds from the flesh is death. 
Ishmael, it must be cut off. But that God is also going to himself provide the grace that is needed to overcome the flesh and defeat the death, Isaac. And that grace, it's not a power, but a person. It's not a thing, but a king, the promised seed. Isaac is the seed through whom that seed, the seed, will come. Isaac, apart from anything in him, He's not better than Ishmael. There's nothing within Isaac. Remember, it's grace. But apart from anything that he will do, anything that he deserves or merits, he will receive the blessing of God's covenant faithfulness, of God's promise, God's presence. God will work through him to bring about his grand plan of rescue by sending his own son to save his own people. And so that has always been the identity of God's true people. It is those who are of the Spirit, Old Testament and New. Let's look at that. Go back to Ephesians 2. We read it earlier. Open this up. You might want to have this in front of you. Ephesians chapter 2. Did you know that there was a second part of Ephesians chapter 2? Um, we love Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We get to verse 11, like, oh, there's more? That's great. Um, no, this is a really important text uh, for these days. So look back at Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 11. Uh, there is an in and an out. Uh, there is separation, uh, Jew and Gentile. That's not a racial uh, separation. That's a religious separation. That's a flesh-spirit separation. Verse 11, look at it there. What's the problem? Oh, we see the Gentiles are in the flesh. Okay, remember, flesh is, is death. Flesh is bad. Verse 12, the result, what's the result of being in the flesh? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, true Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Listen, that's everyone, Jew and Gentile, in the flesh. They are strangers. This is what we're looking at. This covenant of promise, they're strangers to that. And it says they're separated from Christ, and it says after that, if they're separated from Christ, having no hope. So there's no hope in the flesh. There is no hope in this world. But... Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. How? How can there be reconciliation? How can there be relationship? Oh, he tells us, by the blood of Christ. That's what's promised from the very beginning in Genesis 3.15. Remember, he will bruise your heel, or you will bruise his heel. That's what circumcision ultimately symbolizes. The wages of sin is death. Sin that separates us from the God of life. Something has to be done about that sin. There has to be death. There has to be blood. And that's what God has been promising from the very beginning. And that's still ultimately what he's promising to do in Genesis 17. To send this seed through Isaac who would do all this and who would redeem his people by his blood. Blood for blood. He dies so that I can live. The result, verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He's not ultimately talking about vertical peace. That's first. That's the foundational uh, peace. Peace with God. But he's talking about that then leads to our peace with others. Who has made us both one and has broken down. Oh, I love this. What have he's done? He's broken down how? In the flesh. Oh. Uh, there's so much here. Uh, you guys don't need to be anywhere, do you? We can just keep going. Um, our flesh availeth nothing. His flesh availeth everything. He did this in his 
flesh. And what did he do in this flesh? Verse 15, he abolishes the law of commandments and ordinances. In other words, he kept the law. He fulfilled the law for us. Remember, covenant of works. You have to be righteous to be in relationship with me. You're not righteous. So God promises one who is going to come and be righteous for us in our place. That's what Jesus does. He fulfills the law for us by keeping it for us. Grace. 16. That he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. So you see, it's only by the blood and it's only by the cross that there can be peace. It is only the gospel that offers reconciliation vertically with God, which then flows horizontally uh, with to others. Therefore, verse 18, we are no longer strangers and aliens. That's out. Strangers and aliens. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You see that? That's in, not out, but in. That's in. And it, look at the language he uses. Household. It's Family, part of the household of God, with God, the God who is blessing and life. And that is only possible by that bloody cross promised us here in Genesis 17. The covenants are all ultimately about Jesus. They are all progressively pointing forward to the covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace, which he says is bought with his blood. And that's the only way and so look down at verse 22. How does this all happen? He says, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, flesh is death. Spirit is life. It is only those who are of the Spirit that are God's people. Only those who receive the benefit of the work of Christ by grace through faith. We all know the verse just came a few verses earlier, 2.8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, but it is the gift of God. Ishmael represents any attempts at your own doing. The flesh, out. Isaac represents grace through faith. The spirit, in. God's true people have always and only been believers, those Jew and Gentile, born again by grace through faith in the Christ that is promised in this very covenant. So, are you of the flesh or of the Spirit? Are you in the family of the household of God or still a stranger to the promises without hope and without God? How can you tell? I'm not going to tell you. Uh, we're running short on time. Uh, sermon prep tip. Uh, don't work on sermons in the car. Um, but let me just mention uh, point number four. Let's look at it really, really quick, and then I'll be done. Point number four, Abraham. Here's how you can tell. Here's, here, here's how the Spirit responds to God's grace. God's people exercise obedient faith. It's that simple. Verses 22 through 27, we don't need to go through them all. It's just pretty quick, and, and matter of fact, we see that Abraham obeys. God says, be circumcised, you and everyone. And immediately, Abraham and everyone are immediately circumcised. This would have been hundreds of, of men. This would have been an awful, bloody, graphic scene. I'm just asking you guys to join the church and get wet. Look at what he asked Abraham uh, to do. So Abraham, in beautiful contrast to chapter 16, obeys. And his obedience is an expression of his faith. Faith always demonstrates itself. In obedience. 
God's people, people of the Spirit, people in whom God has graciously given uh, new hearts, they love and trust their God of grace. And then they love and long to obey their good God of grace. Guys, covenant, covenant changes you. When God enters into covenant relationship with you, it transforms you. It changes everything. Now, many of us want the blessings and the benefits without the changes and conditions, but you simply do not know God if he has not changed your life. I'm very thankful that none of you knew me 12 years ago, right, before I met and have known Melissa for 12 years. Right? So just being in relationship with my wife for 12 years has absolutely transformed me. You cannot be in a close, intimate, personal relationship with someone who is better than you and then be made more and more uh, like them. You cannot come into relationship with this God who is perfectly good and not become more and more like him. There's a family likeness uh, that we grow into. If you have the Spirit, you will become like the Spirit. If you know and are known by God, you will become like God. Abraham believed God. 15.6, Abraham had faith. Do you believe? Abraham obeyed God. 17.23, is your faith now then demonstrating itself in increasing obedience and increasing Christ-likeness? It is only a work of the Spirit. We receive it only through faith, but it then shows itself. Those are God's people. Those who are God's people are those of the Spirit, and as a result of His grace, they then exercise obedient faith. So, what do we, what do, we do with this? Let's finish. How do we, how do we apply this? First, I think, first we have to love those who are in the family because they are family. There's some, we all know there's something special about family. It has a special bond. I miss uh, my family. Uh, notice that Scripture, we just saw it in Ephesians 2, Scripture talks about the church as family. And it is like that, even more like that. It is our identity. It is our people. We look out for our people. We live for our people. We work for our people. We provide uh, for our people. Uh, Church loves the church. The people of God love the people of God. But second then, we must also love those who are out, longing to bring them in to the family. Because we know what it means to be outside of this family. We know what it means to be out of God's family. Nothing but death and despair eternally. That means that we love them and we look out for them. Hey, that means also that we do justice, Micah 6, 8. That's next week. But as I said, we need to make sure we understand justice the way that the Bible understands justice. So come back as we're going to step back and specifically talk for a bit, not about social justice, but biblical justice. So so pray for me and, and pray for that and read Genesis 18. But if we truly believe that there is only in or out, there is no third option, and that the way in is only one, not the flesh, but the spirit, the Holy Spirit, in our hearts, given by the grace of God, only through faith in the seed, in the Son, Jesus Christ, then we must speak up and we must uh, speak out. Doesn't everyone who dies apart from Christ, black or white, left or right, dies eternally separated from God, dies out. 
dies separated, dies cut off from the life-giving relationship that we must have. And so, having received the free grace of God while we were yet sinners, because having not received the justice that we deserved, because Christ received it for us in our place, having received the eternal mercy of God bought for us by the blood of Christ, then we must long for nothing more than as many as possible to also not get the justice they deserve um, in the eyes of God. To not receive the wages of their sins, which is eternal death. And so, church, we must pray. And church, we must proclaim. And we must proclaim the good news of the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, which is the only ultimate solution for all the mess that is going on around us right now. The only hope of reconciliation. First, reconciliation with God. Right? We have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, which should then flow over into reconciliation with others as we seek to love them as God has loved us. As we seek for everyone to find the same reconciliation, peace, and mercy that we have found in Jesus Christ. Those who are of the Spirit respond in obedient faith. And our King, our Savior, has clearly commanded us, go and make disciples of all the nations, everybody. And that only happens with the Word. So there's, just, there's only one message that can save this lost and dying world, and it's the gospel, and it's the message that only the church has. We know, then, what we must do. I mean, none of this negates the importance of justice now and the need for fairness and equal treatment under the law now. We're going to talk about that um, next week. Um, but it's got to put things into perspective. People are dying apart from Christ, and we have the one thing, the one word that can save them. And guys, I'm very concerned about how little uh, I'm concerned about evangelism. I, I, I hate that about myself. I am not an evangelist. I am not a great evangelist. And that really burdens me. Do I actually believe that everyone who dies apart from Christ dies utterly and eternally lost? I really believe that it would transform how I live and what I do and what I say. So you can pray that for me. You can pray that um, for our church. We've got the gospel, the good news of the reconciliation that God offers uh, to the world. Will we speak up? We've got to stop. Interact. God wants you uh, to know whose are his. And brothers and sisters, he wants you to know that you are his. He wants that to be your identity, your life, your hope, and your joy. And then he wants you to live in light of who you are in Christ. He wants you to love him. Two great commandments. Love God and then love others. Right? Love those who are in and love those who are out enough uh, to call them in uh, by calling them to Jesus Christ who is life and peace and hope and joy and rest who is everything. Look at what God has done to restore our relationship uh, with his people. Um, this is a God who has come to rescue us from our sin uh, through the work of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's pointing us forward to even here in Genesis uh, 17. So know him and know that you are his and rest um, in the great uh, joy that is to be found there. Let's close um, with, with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Father, your words are infinitely better than my words. And, and so I pray that your word uh, would be what is uh, front and center 
I pray that your word would be clear. Father, I pray that you would work uh, through your word. Father, we thank you that you uh, speak to us and you reveal yourself to us and you reveal uh, to us your plans, um, what we must believe about you and what you require of us. You have shown us uh, what must be done for the relationship to be restored. And so I pray that we would be comforted and encouraged in the gospel. I pray that we would see that you have done everything that is required uh, through Jesus Christ, uh, whom you ultimately promised in Genesis uh, 17, uh, to come and to live in our place and to be perfectly righteous for us um, so that we could be restored to relationship with you. Father, you have saved us from death and hell, and I pray that that would give us great joy. And I pray that that joy would then overflow into a life that is lived for you and for your glory, um, and then to love those uh, who are around us, uh, to love our church, um, to love those who you bring into contact with us, and Father, to love people uh, with the good news um, that they too can know the reconciliation and peace uh, that is offered in Jesus Christ. And Father, we are just different degrees of, of hurt and pain and, and confusion. Father, this is a strange and difficult time um, in our country. We ask that you would have mercy upon us. We ask that you would give us wisdom as your church um, to be a light, um, to speak your word, and to speak it humbly, um, to speak it uh, clearly. Um, Father, I just pray that you would guide us and give us much wisdom, uh, Lord, to represent you well in this difficult time. Father, please uh, have mercy on our nation. Uh, please have mercy upon us. Um, Father, I pray that we would find great refuge in you um, in this difficult time. And we ask and we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.